Okay, so why don't you each, and this is the first time the three of us have met in person, which is fun. Oh, that's cool. And we've got a box of cheap wine over there and some alcohol, <laughs> which is required by the PCA, I think. Pipe, cigars, and alcohol. The first thing I knew about Doug Servin was his profile picture on his church's website. He's wearing a bright primary red suit and a matching tie, sunglasses that look like he borrowed them from Elton John, and a grin that says, I'm probably up to no good. The day we recorded the conversation you're about to hear, he was wearing a t-shirt with John Lewis's quote, good trouble, necessary trouble. And that quote pretty much sums up Doug Servin. We've spent the first five episodes of this series examining the details of Elizabeth's murder, but now we're going to shift gears for a few more episodes and focus on the effects the murder had on the Covenant community and the PCA more broadly. You'll hear from some people invested in this case in their own words. We'll get back to more details about the murder investigation and details never publicly released in future episodes. As we've researched for this series and spoken with dozens of people about it, it's amazing how many people connected to Covenant over the last 33 years knew little to nothing about the details, if they even knew a murder happened at all. And for those who did know about Elizabeth, there are lingering questions about how Covenant Seminary may have tried to sweep the murder under the rug, and what effects that may have had on Covenant's culture. So today we examine what people have or haven't said about the unsolved murder of Elizabeth McIntosh. This is True Believer. Episode 6. Don't talk about it. Before we get into what other people have to say about Elizabeth's murder, first, you need to understand a little bit about how this series came together in the first place. As you heard in Episode 1, my friend Kyle Hackman first told me about Elizabeth's murder sometime around 2017. Then in 2021, Kyle told me about Doug Servin, who was another PCA pastor and, importantly, a board member at Covenant Seminary. He said Doug was also interested in Elizabeth's case. He was considering doing his own podcast about the murder, and apparently he was also working on a screenplay about it. Over time, Doug and I started talking more, sharing information, and eventually we decided that with Kyle and Doug's connections to the PCA and my production capabilities, it might be possible to actually produce a series. Then in the summer of 2023, Doug told me about his daughter, Ruth who was a full-time journalist, and that she might be able to help us with this project. Now, Doug Servin is a bit of a controversial figure within certain PCA and Covenant circles, and this has led to a lot of people being skeptical about this series. Here's Ruth talking about her dad and his relationship to this project. TJ, I think controversial is relative. Um, I mostly know him as my dad. He's leading a cornhole league and talks about football and rides his boat. I mostly hear people talk about my dad being controversial as it relates to women in the church, even though he's still a conservative PCA pastor, and as it relates to this project podcast series. I mean, I guess he's controversial because he thinks more people should talk about Elizabeth McIntosh and people don't want to. So that's exactly what we're talking about here right now, but it's come up in relation to this project a lot because when he initially was talking to you, I wasn't involved at the time, and he kept feeling like he was getting shut down by people directly connected to Covenant or who might know something important, and he couldn't get them to tell them what he knew, and so I think he just pushed on it more than people were comfortable. 
but this wouldn't have happened without him either. So, but, but basically as I came on, he was involved less and he hasn't been involved in how we've actually put this project together. That's been all you and I's decisions, but you know, he's still interested in what we're doing and gives feedback and helps us contact people that we don't have contact with. When he first started talking to me about it, it was, I'm in a position with the seminary where I could make something happen. Why isn't this happening? And um, I, th- I thought that was fine at the time, but I do think as he got more invested in this independent project, you know, it really became clear that he needed to either be on part of the project or be on leadership at the seminary. They probably shouldn't both be happening at once. And then it did work out that he left the board at the seminary as this project was really ramping up. So I don't think there was ever really a conflict of interest, but I guess it's possible that people thought there might be. About a year ago, Doug was back in St. Louis for a covenant board meeting, and we wanted to get together not only to meet in person for the first time, but to record some initial thoughts about Elizabeth's story. At that point, I had only recorded a couple of interviews, and we were still very early in the research process. Doug had a friend on the Covenant board named Brittany, and she had also been interested in Elizabeth's story. So the three of us got together one night to do essentially what I did with Kyle and Stout for the first episode, sit in front of microphones and just talk about the case. And even though we've learned a lot more about the case since this was recorded, Their thoughts about how they first learned about Elizabeth and the effects the murder had on people connected to Covenant are still very relevant. Doug, we'll start with you. So who are you and uh, what's your story and how did you come to be interested in this case? Well, TJ, that is a deep question. I am a PCA pastor and have been since I got ordained in 2001. I went to Covenant in... 97 to 2000, got a Master's of Divinity, and then after that, I started the RUF Reform University Fellowship Chapter at the University of Oklahoma, did that for 10 years, and that's where Brittany came happily (laughs) from the University of Texas. She got (laughs) placed at OU. These are rivals. She might tell you she cried, (laughs) but it was life-changing. In many ways. In many ways. And she was super awesome to work with. That's how we know each other. And then she married another, an OU guy, and so we've been friends ever since. I'm a big fan, big fan. Then in 2011, I left RUF and planted a church in Oklahoma City, 30 miles away, called City Presbyterian Church. I did that for 10 years. Um, a lot of stuff happened. And I resigned under fine terms, not in any nefarious ways. We're not going to have to disavow you at some point into this podcast well, process. Don't rule it well, out. there's other reasons to do that. <laughs> and oddly enough, moved to Baltimore, Maryland. And so I've lived there coming up on a year. And I've been doing uh, interim work and working on my other side projects, trying to figure out what's going on in life. First time I heard about the Covenant murder was probably, I don't remember exactly the year, but in the early 2000s at RUF staff training, this is where all the campus ministers and interns get together, and we go through a week's worth of meetings, but then we also hobnob at night and 
hang out and drink and tell stories. And so this is after you were a student at Covenant. You had never heard about it while you were a student at Covenant. Exactly true. I don't think very many people do. I was listening to a story being told by John all about it for hours. It didn't go anywhere after that for you, right? No. After John. Well, the thing that happens is if you go to Covenant, you have this jarring moment when you learn about this thing that happened on your seminary that no one talks about. So a lot of us, when we get together, talk about it. And we've always just like lightly converse and wonder who did it. And um, But it's a fairly frequent, small, but important topic. Then I somehow got on the board of Covenant Seminary. You got elected. I got elected, but it was a surprise and, <laughs> and no one really expected it. Um, was it a rigged election? It, yes, they all are. <laughs> Let's just be honest. I was not Covenant's number one choice, but I think they're glad I, they have me Well, now. you were the PCA's Sometimes. number one choice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that happened. And then during COVID, there were about five or six of us pastors that got together in Breckenridge. And we were all doing terrible, like everybody, but it's this is different types of terrible. And uh, one night after karaoke and pizza and beers, we were starting to talk about the murder, which is sort of common. And I think I was the one that said, okay, let's stop talking about this and maybe try to figure this out. Like, we, this is figure outable. I don't think it was a random killer. The person that everyone thinks it is hasn't ever been convicted. Let's figure out who was on campus, okay? So we're all sort of doing this in real time, and our friend Ewan is also texting Kyle Hackman, your buddy, who we knew knew a lot about it because during COVID and the lockdown in Canada especially, he had a lot of time on his hands, and he had been deep diving into this, and we sort of knew he was, but we didn't know what he knew. So while we would talk... Ewan would sort of confirm with Kyle, who had said, I will answer yes or no, but I won't tell you any leading questions. And we got closer and closer and closer, but we had this sort of help. And so that sort of changed th th my personal interest. And since then, I've gotten more and more frustrated. And so I've been personally working on stuff and then I've gotten a few other reasons to know more than I did a long time ago. <laughs> partly it's partly because I'm on the board, but that's another like conflict in some ways. So and then well, here we are. Some people might say an obsession. I think it's determination and also, I haven't had a full-time job <laughs> in a year and a half. Mm, fix so, fixation. Uh, Maybe it's, fixation. It's helpful for me to think about other things sometimes. And, okay, here's, here's another important piece for me. Unconnected from Elizabeth, years ago, I decided that I wanted to speak up for people that don't have a voice, especially in church circles and or in my own church or whatever. Sometimes that had to do with... Uh, helping women through the legal issues of whatever, you know, and advocating for them. Or I also publish books, so like getting people to get to say something that they wouldn't normally get to say. And this really is in some ways the ultimate example of a person that 
not only doesn't have a voice, it's basically ignored, uh, who was murdered on our own spot. And so that fact and my disposition really come together on this one issue. When did you first learn about the murder? So I don't have the exact same experience as you where, like definitely when you're a student at Covenant when, during my era, it, it does get talked about, but not officially. So it, you always find out from like another student or something weird, but there wasn't, there still was, like I remember hearing about it. Oh, there was a murder here, but it was not the fic, like, I was like, what? I remember being like, what? But nobody knew details anymore. Like, it's almost like the institutional memory had faded slightly, at least with my circles. And so I remember learning about it, but I didn't seem like it didn't seem of interest at the time. So I didn't learn anything else other than it existed. It had happened. And then I can't remember sometime around the time you were getting into it during COVID, I can't remember which one happened first. You either texted me. We had a pretty long text exchange related to what you were learning. But I also found out about it mostly with the most detail from also talking to John, who is a pastor in my town, who is also a good friend. And we just happened to be hanging out with him and his wife and another couple one night when there was actually a covenant rep in town visiting us. And so he does like to talk, but also he likes to talk even more if you tell him not to talk. So uh, he gave lots of, like, a, he wanted to tell me and my husband the whole story because we'd never heard it before. So I can't remember if he told me his version of finding Elizabeth and all that came after and his theory, which is that a serial. While the covenant rep is trying to While the covenant rep is in the stop. room feeling really uncomfortable and telling stop him to stop talking, talking about, about it, please. And he wouldn't and stop. at the time, I'm pretty sure that the covenant rep was saying that because the re, the investigation had been reopened and the, he but I think the point was that they were cooperating and expecting something. This was fairly of, recently, right? Like 2019, 2020? It was, yeah, yeah, 2019 or 2020. I don't think it's uh, unusual to have sort of a fascination with true crime, but I also have a conflicted ethical, like a conflicted ethics about how we deal with true crime. Is it entertainment, consumptive? Uh, exploitative exploitative way of, of dealing with things that really happen to real people that are very, very horrific. Um, so I sometimes understand why telling the stories is important and even understand like a healthy pathology of it for some people of being able to understand, like think about it in a way that helps them process trauma for themselves. That's fine. But I think there also can be ways we go about it that is very unhealthy, both for the people following the cases, but it definitely is damaging and hurtful and dehumanizing to uh, victims and their families and the people who work on the cases. So, uh, so I feel, so I, throughout the process of following and, and getting interested in finding out more details about Elizabeth's murder, I have been up and down on that. So I, but I think what kind of brings me around towards being willing to have a microphone in your have face. a microphone in front of my face <laughs> and talk about it with you guys is um, the hope that while being careful not to make this its own form of exploitation, there is something about Elizabeth's story and and this murder happening at Covenant Seminary's campus, her being a single older woman and you know not knowing anything about her as a person, you know we 
almost everything we know at this point still is pretty speculative because we didn't know her and everything's from so long ago. Um, It still paints such an interesting picture when you understand the context of the PCA and what it means to be a woman in the PCA, especially a woman who attends seminary in the PCA or who feels called or interested or gifted for ministry. and Especially so, outspoken ones. Especially outspoken ones who don't fit a certain mold or who, yeah, you just can't fit in a box. So, um, Which is you. <laughs> sure. Yes. I Yeah. So I, there's a little bit of identification with her, curiosity about that. And, but it's, it's more than just her and who she is as a person, but also like the way she was treated, right? And w- the way her death was treated by the seminary or by the, the people in her community. And the fact that it's just not talked about in a way that gives honor to her as having, a, having dignity as a person and that she lived and died with us and seeking justice for her. So that's kind of where I've landed on why this might be a worthwhile endeavor <laughs> for us to do. You talk about losing your ordination all the time over this. And um, I just, I mean, as somebody who's not ordained and probably will never be, never will be. And there is, there's such a fear, I think, in a lot of our institutions of the image we're presenting and keeping our vows. And I'm like, those are not unimportant things, but just everything's locked down. Like we don't talk freely. Like we can't make mistakes. We can't put out a bad, you know bad word about something. Yeah, so I think some of it is institutionally covenants not super hyped about this topic, which of course, but there's also like the positive side is we don't want to slander people. Yeah. And not only does nobody really want to do that, like a pastor gets in trouble. Not legally, but you know, in the church. And so that's going to be a big hump to overcome because that's on our minds, right? And anyone who's going to talk to this, that's going to be on their mind too. Yeah. You guys hold your, yourselves to a very high standard, which sometimes is a very beautiful thing and sometimes also undermines. Let's just tell the because truth. Because another aspect in our circles, at least, is we talk about honesty and brokenness and willingness to be vulnerable and all these beautiful things. But it depends on what you're talking about mm-hmm. as to how, how far that goes. So there's a... Another interesting dichotomy. We'll all the time talk about honoring women and uh, being broken and being honest. And then you have this whole thing of like, no one wants to talk about it. Doesn't feel like any of those things are true. But uh, on the other hand, this is a, a lot different topic than our normal ones, right? Yeah. And lots of trauma surrounding it too, which is, I just, it's a really, it is a really delicate, you know, thing to talk about someone getting murdered. Even just with us, once we start throwing out names, that is a different stake than just generalizing. I, those Kyle and Andrew didn't throw out names. Yeah, Kyle's very careful. Yeah. Why? I'm and a why? Lot less why careful. is he so careful? Like, that's exactly what we're talking about. Why is he so careful? When I had talked with them, I had said it's kind of like the prisoner's dilemma. Everyone wants to talk, but no one is incentivized to be the first one. Mm-hmm. And so. It's like if everybody could see, if there was a, an unspoken agreement writ large, okay, free, you know, immunity to everyone, say whatever you're going to say, be honest, be open, then I think a lot of people would want to talk. Mm-hmm. But 
no one's incentivized to be the first guy off the boat at Normandy Beach. <laughs> so so we had to convince them to do that. And if we can get someone Remember like... Remember, you weren't going to talk... That wasn't going to be one of your... <laughs> Well, but like even that metaphor, like you're hearing that metaphor is because people think there are going to be guns shooting at them if they get off the boat. Like whether that's true or not. I mean, that's the world all these people live in. You're the first off the boat and you get a beautiful vacation. right? Or you get shot just in the leg and you don't die, but you get rescued. I mean, there's (laughs) I just think become a local hero. The metaphor, it just is talking about the very real perceived danger that everybody feels. I feel it for sure. I mentioned Doug's shirt. Good trouble, necessary trouble. That same day, Brittany was wearing a shirt that said, nothing changes if nothing changes. Here's Ruth talking about Doug and Brittany's tension over how to handle Elizabeth's case. Yeah, TJ, I think what my dad and Brittany talk about there about wanting to be super careful and being very aware of their positions of authority, really, in, in the church setting and how seriously they take telling the truth, how seriously they take um, respecting people's names and not wanting to slander anyone or defame them. Um, that's one reason why I really respect their work on this project, too, is because they're participating in this, in this because they think it's important to tell the truth and because they're being really careful and how they talk about each piece of it. That's a common sentiment, too, that I've seen a lot of people bring up when they are wondering whether it's worth talking about something hard in the church. I do think there is a common sentiment. I think they've used it well here of being careful and respectful. I do think sometimes that can be misused, though, to encourage people not to talk when transparency is needed. And that's really something we've encountered as we've dug through this case. Doug mentioned his trip to Colorado during COVID with some pastor friends, and that one of them, Ewan, knew my friend Kyle. That's Ewan Kennedy. He's a graduate from Covenant and was a PCA pastor for over 20 years. And like Elizabeth, he's also a Scottish native. When you were a student at Covenant, did you have any classes in the chapel basement? Yes, multiple classes in all of the classrooms in the basement of the chapel. And uh, remember going into that bathroom and kind of, you know, remembering what Dr. Van Groningen had talked about uh, and, you know, feeling strange and uneasy and uh, just this kind of surreal dynamic because I None of the students that I was in seminary with had heard about this or knew about it, and nobody talked about it. And when I, I raised it, it was, you know, generally the kind of the posture of the response was of kind of disbelief. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, 2023, and so this murder has been something I've known about for, you know, over 30 years. And uh, yes, uh, from the administration and from faculty, the most part, it's been, we don't talk about this. Uh, and so the impetus, you know, to kind of look into this, you know, even leading to this, you know, leading to this, you know, podcast has come from, from various students who've been, you know, come to a place of saying that, that that's not okay. And not just students, but students and their wives who've said, this happened to a woman, to a female student. Uh, and it's not okay that this is not being talked about, 
not been acknowledged. There's been no reference to it. There's no you know memorial about it. But you no, know, that's been a, a disturbing kind of reality in the lack of dialogue or or acknowledgement that this even happened. But the tragedy in all of that is there's been no prayer, no remembrance, no grieving of this woman who died. And so that's a, that's a real tragic thing. And uh, you know, as people hear about this and know about it, I think that's had a, a significant you know, negative impact in terms of, you know, we're Christians, you know, we're a the conservative denomination that, you know, that claims to believe in the Bible and not be afraid of what the Bible says. The Bible talks about difficult and awful things, rapes and murders and, uh, and, and women and men, but yet this is something that we can't talk about. So I'm not great with politics. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not great with you know, parsing answers or saying less than you really should. Uh, you know, part of that is being Scottish. Part of that is reading the Bible. But my kind of, you know, my kind of default is if, if God is this honest in the Bible about stuff, we need to be too. And so it's been a strange and disturbing reality that this has been kind of a dirty little secret that no one wants to talk about or acknowledge. And so... Over the past 10 plus years, I, you know, I've heard from people who have inquired about an investigation that was done, uh, about letters that were written to uh, Michael from the physical plant, about lawyers who were involved, and come to discover that the St. Louis police didn't know about those investigations or didn't know uh, and, and weren't given the results of those. And so the past 10 plus years, the kind of the revelations of Covenant Seminary doing things under the cover of darkness and not being transparent has been really quite disturbing and disappointing and alarming as someone who believes that God calls us to transparency and to justice. Uh, and, and this was this is you know not about some weird theological kind of difference. This is about a woman whose life was taken on the campus of the seminary. And so kind of discovering the ongoing involvement of the administration, the knowledge of the administration and the board uh, and lawyers being involved and that not being disclosed to the public or to the police has been really quite troubling and saddening and raised a lot of questions, you know, that, you know about trust. We talked in episode four about Covenant's internal investigation, how their lawyer, Mark Bells, presented a five-page executive summary to the board, but that the full report and all the investigation files seem to have disappeared. This is only my personal opinion here, and Ruth agrees, but we find it extremely hard to believe that no one at Covenant Seminary, namely President Paul Koistra, Vice President Brian Chapel, or the members of the seminary board ever saw the full contents of that report. Next is Diane Preston, whom you've heard from several times already. Diane knew Elizabeth in England prior to her coming to America, and she worked at Covenant for over 30 years. Diane's the kind of person that might be described as the power behind the throne. She started at Covenant in the fall of 1991, so about 18 months after Elizabeth's murder. But almost immediately, women from the campus started talking to her about it. 
Covenant was different then than it is now. When I started, the faculty were doing all the advising, and um, they kept screwing it up, basically. <laughs> and then it would fall to me as the registrar to smile sweetly at a student and say, you can't do that. <laughs> Um, and you have to change it. Well, Dr. So-and-so says, I don't care what Dr. So-and-so said, don't do that. So finally, after two two years, the faculty all looked at each other and said, shoot, let's just let her do it. So I was doing all the advising after two years, but even in the first year, just because I was there and they all knew what had happened, they needed somebody to talk to. And they would come, and the girls especially would come and talk to me. This was a legacy of the murder. I was, for reasons known only to Brian Chapel, I was put in charge of making sure the classrooms were always ready for teaching. No idea why, but anyway, that meant I had a key to all the classrooms, except the ones in the chapel. After 33 years, I never had a key to the chapel, and that was because that's where Liz was murdered, and they didn't want me in there by myself. The girls would come in and talk to me. What happened? Are we safe? Um, and just a general angst. Uh, who was it? You know, which <laughs> obviously hasn't been answered to this point, but they needed somebody to basically reassure them and say, you know, we've put protections in place and people are not allowed in buildings, certain buildings by themselves, etc. just to try to help them and calm them down. They were, at the time, some of them, well, Liz lived in Brian Chappell's basement with Chris, the other gal. And the second house was the Calhoun house. I can't remember if there was anybody in Calhoun's basement. The third house was another faculty house, and there were students in that house also. And they were nervous walking across campus because there's a teeny little wood there, and you, it's not terribly well lit. So, you know, they wanted to be reassured that they were safe. Did you feel safe? You know, it never occurred to me to not feel safe. But, so, like, did they know when they were talking to you that you knew the person that was murdered? Sometimes I told them. Sometimes I didn't. It depended on how the conversation went. Sometimes they weren't so concerned about Liz as they were the fact that someone was murdered. At that time, there were not as many females. There were nowhere near as many females as there are now because we did not have a counseling program at that time, um, which was the initial draw for a lot of those female students. There were some, but not a whole bunch. But they they just wanted to know they were safe. And I can't, I can't remember if email was working then or if it was the letters, but I got just slammed from the other side in England for months, even years. What do you mean they haven't found who did it? 
And it's like, I don't want to tell you. They haven't found who did it. Um, and it's like, what's wrong with them? Well, I don't know. They're trying. But, I mean, the people in England were just absolutely horrified and totally could not understand why this had not been solved. So it, it, you had that on one side, and then all this stuff here with it just the whole thing was just it snowballed, if that makes sense. And it just kept on snowballing because they couldn't find the murderer. My impression is that Covenant doesn't really want to talk about this very much. There's no plaque. There's no nothing. It's almost like it never happened. What do you think about that? All I can do is give you a guess, and that's all it would be. Covenant doesn't like to talk about it because it's never been solved. It's still an open wound that they don't like to scratch because it bleeds when it's open, and it's been scratched multiple times over the years. Brian sat me down and said, if and when the Creve Corps police arrive with a subpoena, you're not handling that. I'll take it. So that was like training in the first six months I was there from Brian. You will get it, and I did get a few. We heard we've had TV shows try to come. There is one that just recently... I think it just came out in the last month or so. Mm -hmm. But Covenant refused to let them talk to anybody other than Kent, who is the communications guy, and Tom. But I don't know that even that those two did much beyond no comment. It's an open wound that just doesn't go away. The show that Diane referenced is called Cold Justice. They did an episode about Elizabeth's murder, which was released in March of 2023. At the end there, Diane said that Elizabeth's murder is like an open wound for Covenant Seminary. And I know it might seem like this series is a giant finger right back into that open wound. That's certainly the opinion of some of the people we've tried to get to talk. But we think it's actually the opposite. Yes, it might be painful bringing this story back into the light, but you can't heal a wound that you pretend doesn't exist. One of the best people to speak to that open wound dynamic is Richard Winter. Not only because he taught at Covenant for over 30 years, but also because he was the head of Covenant's counseling department. So he has a unique insight into how Elizabeth's murder affected the Covenant community. I think you mentioned in one of your earlier podcasts a sort of reluctance for people to talk about it. And... That was what I, I experienced looking back. Very few people talked about it. Um, it didn't seem to affect anyone very much on the surface. I didn't hear all the deta any of the details that you have described in your podcasts. I knew that the police were still working on it and have been working on it ever since. But, and I, didn't, I never really talked to Paul or Brian about it. I sort of sensed, I suppose, that you know, it was a, it was somewhat of a, a shame for the seminary to have that happening on their 
campus. And therefore, you know, it was, there was a, maybe a bit of hushing up because of that. We didn't, we didn't make a big thing out of it. So that, that's my impression of it. You know, at that time, over 30 years ago, we were, you know, the whole psychological world wasn't talking about trauma nearly as much as it is now. Now we talk about it all the time. We're very sensitive to it. We understand the effects of it um, on the, the brain, on the body, on the, the heart, the, the mind, uh, on the family. So we're much more sophisticated in the way that we try and help people to deal with it. And, I, and there is a tendency, I think, when something traumatic has happened that you, you don't talk about it. You, you, you sort of don't want to believe it's happened. So there's a numbness, a shock. But then with an institution that has a reputation to maintain, they don't want other people to think badly of, of the institution. So, you know, you, you hope that the murder will be solved as quickly and as easily as possible. And if not, let's, let's sort of hush it up. And I think, I, I do think that it would have been perhaps helpful to have talked about it more. I don't know exactly what the staff and the faculty did at the time to help them to talk about what had happened and to debrief on it. But I doubt if very much was done, but um, others can, can speak to that probably. Well, I think, <laughs> I mean, that what you are doing with your podcasts and your investigation of it all is obviously resurfacing it and bringing it into people's consciousness again and, and I think what you've done so far is, is good and, and helpful. Um, so it is that, that is a way of dealing with it. It forces people to, to talk about it, to think about it, to remember. You know, if you had not been doing this, it would have just sat there quietly and I suppose festered in a way. But no one was being, I don't think people, apart from those who are directly involved in it were being affected in a negative way by that ongoing silence. I think the people who were involved with this murder, whether the you know, family of the victims, the, the friends of the victim, the murderer, him or herself, they obviously are dealing with it somehow in the depths of their conscience and heart and mind. I can vouch for the fact that there are still people dealing with Elizabeth's murder in their hearts and minds, because you've already heard from a lot of them, and you're going to hear from more in the episodes to come. A big question we've been wrestling with as we've worked on this series is how Elizabeth has or has not been remembered by Covenant Seminary, and what the lingering effects of not remembering her or talking about her may have had on Covenant's culture. Here's Ruth. But I think what we're toggling back and forth with in this series is the difference between an institutional silence and a personal silence. So people have all sorts of reasons for being personally quiet on a topic, and sometimes they're totally fair reasons, right? Like, I just, it was traumatic, I don't want to deal with it again, or I've moved on, I really just don't see a value in it. Then there's the people who silence something for bad reasons, which is, I don't want to tell the truth. I don't want someone to know this ugly thing that I was involved in. 
But then that's all different from an institutional silencing, which is people who may or may not have had a personal involvement saying, it's just not in my interest to help you. Like, it would be bad for the seminary to talk, keep talking about this. It would be bad for the church to keep talking about this. And so I think what we're dealing with in, in this episode and throughout the series is ongoing silence by whom? And we're talking about an ongoing silence by both individuals and institutions, some of which is understandable, some of which I would say is not healthy. In the last episode, you heard briefly from Ben Homan, who was Covenant's Director of Development from 1988 to 2000. Here, he tells an interesting story about a time that he was asked by someone outside of Covenant Seminary to talk publicly about the seminary's response to Elizabeth's murder and crisis communications in general. I would get questions as I was traveling around the country talking with donors, churches, presbyteries. Every once in a while, I would get a question, you know, has anybody been arrested? And, uh, you know, obviously it hasn't happened. So there was a collective memory around the denomination and the stakeholders about this. But I don't remember any specific instruction on the part of leadership about, well, don't talk about it. Now, one thing that happened, it must have happened in the spring of 2000. So, you know, quite some years after Elizabeth's murder, and someone at the Association for Theological Schools in the United States and Canada, often called ATS, they contacted me and we said, and then they, they, they said, Ben, we're, you know, aware that Covenant had a murder on the campus. You probably know a little bit about communication and a crisis, would you come to the big ATS meeting and lead a seminar on crisis communications? I said, sure, you know, I'll do that. And that meeting was in Toronto. And so I prepared my materials and all of that. And then uh, at that point, I was VP for development, had been for quite some time. And I reported directly to Brian. And so it was natural for me to mention to Brian that uh, I was going to speak about this. And he was not a happy camper, we'll say that. And But I had already committed to doing it. And, and uh, he wanted to see my materials and my notes, how I was going to present things. And so I let him look at that and approve what I was going to present. And so I did the seminar in Toronto. And then I later, maybe a couple months later, wrote an article for ATS on crisis communications. And basically, you know, the article was about principles of communication. And, you know, one of the principles is you cannot not communicate. One more time, you cannot not communicate. You know, that would be my word to colleagues that are out there that were around this situation. If you choose not to communicate about about this, you're communicating because that is what we should do, in my view, in terms of um, uh, justice for Elizabeth, for truth for Elizabeth, but not just even limited to, to Elizabeth, but for all of us. We should be about truth and what we do and how we serve. And so I think by talking about this, we were instructive, not only about this situation, but about many other situations. So, uh, and I, that's one of the reasons why I agreed to this interview is let's talk about it. 
Ben mentioned something that I think speaks to this contradiction around how Covenant Seminary handled Elizabeth's murder over the decades. Basically, none of the people we've interviewed indicated that they heard a direct order from anyone in authority at Covenant, specifically forbidding them from speaking about Elizabeth or her murder. But many, many people also had this sense that the topic was something that was not supposed to be talked about. As you heard Ben say, Brian Chappell was not a happy camper that Ben agreed to speak publicly. But Ben also wasn't explicitly forbidden from giving his talk. Now, it's worth saying here that we do have some documented evidence that Covenant administrators were eager to keep Elizabeth's murder under wraps, which we'll talk more about in a future episode. Before moving on, there are a few other times we've heard about that Elizabeth's murder has been talked about publicly. In 2003, Pastor Robert S. Rayburn did a sermon series about eschatology, which is, broadly speaking, the study of the end times. Now, Rayburn's name should sound familiar. Elizabeth was murdered in the basement of Rayburn Chapel, which was named after Covenant's founding president, Robert G. Rayburn, Robert S. Rayburn's father. In one of his sermons from that series, titled The Judgment of the Wicked, Rayburn talks about the evil that many people seem to get away with in this life. He says that, quote, Only a fraction of the murders that are committed are ever solved. Murderers sometimes get away with it on a legal technicality or because their guilt can't be proved. More often, they're never identified and no case is brought against them. There was a terrible murder on the campus of our Covenant Theological Seminary several years ago. A delightful Scottish woman studying at the seminary was brutally killed. The police were quite sure they knew who did it, a seminary student, but never charged him and probably never will." Unquote. One curious thing to note here, there are 24 sermons in Rayburn's eschatology series, all of which are publicly available on the church's website, but the sermon where he mentions Elizabeth's murder is the only one that doesn't have an audio file available to listen to, although you can still read the transcript. If you listen to the bonus interview with Jerem Bars that we released last week, you heard him mention a man named George Robertson. George was a student at Covenant at the time of the murder, and he went on to pastor several PCA churches around the country. At least twice that we know of, George has mentioned Elizabeth's murder during talks he gave at Covenant. Sometime around 2003, he spoke at a Covenant chapel service about fear. He said something to the effect that, one of the most fearful times in my life was when Elizabeth McIntosh was murdered right below us in this chapel. He said that after the murder, people were afraid that someone might jump out and attack them from behind the chapel's pipe organ, and that male students wouldn't use the bathroom in the chapel basement alone. Then in 2023, 20 years later, George spoke again at Covenant's graduation ceremony, where he talked about difficulties that pastors might encounter in their ministries. Here's the part where he talks about Elizabeth. When I was a student here, we, one of my best friends died very tragically on our campus. Her father was a leader in the Scottish Presbyterian Church. He came back to attend the funeral and he stayed with David and Ann Calhoun. And for hours, Dr. Calhoun and Dr. McIntosh walked the campus in Conway Park and there would be long periods of time when no words were spoken, and then Dr. McIntosh would say something. And one of the things he said was this. When I heard about Elizabeth's death, I knew the passages of Scripture to turn to. 
I knew the Psalms to look at, but they didn't work. But I've read them again and again, and slowly they are bringing hope. You know, David, it's the Word and the Spirit, isn't it? Here's Doug Servan talking to Jerem Bars about how Covenant dealt with Elizabeth's murder. Institutionally, the church, the culture, Covenant Seminary, with women in general, and then Elizabeth as an example of a very competent, smart woman who was murdered on our grounds. How does that play out from discussing her, honoring her, talking about her, I mean, what's your feeling about how Covenant or the church did with this tragic event? Yeah, I I have to say, I I don't think we did well. I I think our leadership at that time, uh, I gather, kind of wanted to put it away as an issue that was problematic, damaged the image of the seminary, etc., But that's shocking because Elizabeth needs to be remembered. Uh, She needs to be honored. And I hope the seminary can find some way to do that now. It's really important. I mean, there are obvious reasons why the seminary wouldn't be super excited about this. I mean, you know, murder happened on there. That's not a good recruiting tool. No, it isn't. I mean, so how did it feel at the time as this was all happening? And then as you look back... Do you have a different impression? It sounds like you you sort of do have a different impression, but what? And then and then the third one is what would you like to have seen in these thirty three years? I, I I'd have liked to seen that we were talking about it. We were talking about her and remembering her. I think there should have been an effort to have some kind of remembrance every year around the date of her death to honor her and remember her and to pray for the murderer to be found, that would have been appropriate. I think that in the circumstances, you know, the issue of what's a good recruiting tool is irrelevant entirely. The question is what happened? You know, here's something wicked that happened. We need justice here. But no, we should have been remembering her every year and we should have had some kind of permanent way of honoring her. And I think you have to leave things like recruitment to the Lord. He wants us to be true and just and honest. It's it's just like sexual abuse in the church. It has to be talked about in the open. It can't be hidden away. And if it, you hide it away, it comes back to bite you. I 100% agree with you. And what we say in our ethos and preaching and counseling classes, and then nothing has happened. And I don't mean uh, a trial even, but just the approach to this feels so discongruent yes. to what we would tell people should happen. Yeah. How do you make sense of that? Uh, I'm, I think it's very unsatisfactory. You know, I've personally talked about it in class, you know, from time to time, not as a thing, I'm going to talk about this in every class. But it's something I have talked about, you know, sadly, but without embarrassment, because I don't think that's appropriate, but rather as something shocking that happened on our campus. 
And of course, I've thought about it over and over and over again. And if people have ever asked questions about it, I've been glad to talk about it. But yes, I, I think it's very sad that we haven't made a clear and committed effort to talk publicly about this regularly and to pray publicly about this regularly, that it would be resolved. So I think the thing of image, one of the, the areas of our image is something, whether it's personal or for a church or an institution like the seminary, the thing about image is something that we have to leave in God's hands and we have to do what's right rather than be concerned about our image. And I'm afraid the seminary went through a period of 20 years where our leadership was concerned about image far too much. And I hope we've got through that. Covenant as an institution can't change the last 33 years. No. But they do have control over what they do going forward. Yes. So what would you hope Covenant does going forward in relation to all of this? Well, I, I would love to see a permanent memorial of some kind put up at the campus, some kind of public notice set up, you know, maybe some building named in honor of Elizabeth, not the chapel as she died down there, that wouldn't be appropriate, but some other building, perhaps the library or a classroom or something like that, student center, I don't know. I think it would be good from here on out to have a, a regular service in which her name is mentioned and the facts of what happened mentioned and prayer made for her surviving relatives and a lament for, for what happened. That would be appropriate to be, become a regular part of the seminary's life. It should have been happening. I'm sad that it didn't. That was a failure, a sin, I would say, not simply a failure, but a really wrong, but it ought to happen in future. You've heard from several people now who have asked Covenant Seminary to talk more openly about Elizabeth McIntosh and the impact her murder had on the campus, or to consider a regular prayer service or some kind of memorial in her honor. Think about it in another way. What are the consequences of not talking about something bad that happens in connection to a church? And what happens when a generation of people grow up who feel like an unwillingness to talk isn't just an absence of a good thing, but an actively bad thing? And we think this raises some larger questions about the broader context of the PCA and institutions and cultures in general that put a premium on not talking about it. Next time. True Believer is written, recorded, edited, mixed, and executive produced by T.J. Ingracia. Co-written and co-produced by Ruth Servan-Smith. Research and development by Kyle Hackman and Doug Servan. Visit truebeliever.podcast.com to see additional materials related to each episode or to get in touch with us. If you're someone who knew Elizabeth or have any information related to her or her murder, we'd love to hear from you. Next time on True Believer. We've seen that in churches. We've seen that in, in different ministry structures that have turned abusive and everything. This is going great. 
you're making great impact. Why would you bring this up and bring this person or this ministry down? I think sometimes uh, Christian institutions are often more institution than Christian. The same type of demeaning, degrading, devaluation of women happens in the PCA. It's just done in a very different way and a very quiet, subtle, very nice way, which is its own form of spiritual abuse. The PCA, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, independent churches, just how there was a culture uh, where it was accepted to sweep things under the carpet and not bring things to light. And uh, I'm thankful to live in, you know, in 2023 uh, where uh, we understand that that's not okay. This is an issue within the PCA, but it's not exclusive to the PCA, which is that we can handle this on our own. And you have this sort of groundswell within the PCA that's saying it's not good enough. Like your reliance on yourselves is not holding people accountable who should be held accountable.